Well, something very momentous happened the other day. When I became a citizen of the United States, my seven-year unbroken run of being in an overseas mission came to an end. I can't claim that anymore because America is now officially my home. Praise God. Amen. Amen. And I also have a, a very interesting thing, a very interesting thought that occurred to me. It's not often that a preacher gets to preach for the first time for a second time at the same place. And that's what happened today. Last week I was an Irish immigrant. Now I'm an Irish American. God help us. And it is a privilege and an honor and a delight. It's wonderful. This morning I want to talk about a man called Jephthah. You may have heard of him. He's the man who sacrificed his daughter. And there's a lot of controversy about that. A lot of people will look at that and they, they don't really understand the scriptures and they don't look at the context. And what we need to remember when studying the Bible is that context is king. So they look at that and they'll say, oh, look how bloodthirsty their God is demanding a human sacrifice. And we're going to see it was nothing of the sort. You might think that way if you don't study it. And many do. And in Matthew 25, verse 21, the Lord Jesus said, Well done, good and faithful servant. And there's absolutely no doubt that Jephthah was a good and faithful servant. So if you will be turning in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11 and starting at verse 30. Judges chapter 11 and verse 30. I'm way too far ahead there in Kings. Here we find the Bible account of Jephthah. And we're going to start at verse 30 to 36. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aror even till thou cometh to Minna, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah, Unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, If thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For so much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee and thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. The Bible account of Jephthah illustrates with great power two important principles in the divine economy. The first is that Almighty God uses the things that are despised to confound the things that are honoured. 
so that no flesh should glory in, in his presence. And the second principle is this, that God not only wants men who can trust him, but men whom he can trust. Now Jephthah was born a child of misfortune, and it was through no fault of his own. <coughs> he was cast out as a poor, illegitimate boy, despised by his brethren, forsaken by his family, an outcast, and thrown upon the cold mercies of the world. In most persons, this builds a spirit of bitterness and often develops into a hard and heartless unbelief and ungodliness. How natural it is to say, what is the use of trying everything? And everybody is against me. The very heavens are hostile. And either there is no God or there is no God for me. Religion is for the fortunate and favoured ones. I am a child of cruel fate. And as everybody is against me, I shall so also be against everybody. Except as I can use them for my own advantage. Well, this is the natural development of human character apart from the grace of Almighty God. And Jephthah could so easily have fallen into that passion. But grace always proves an exception to every ordinary and natural law. And so in Jephthah's case, we find that this poor little child of shame and of wrong, rising through the pressure of unfavorable circumstances to stronger elements of character and nobler qualities of life, and bringing strength and success from the very difficulties that threatened to crush him. This was not through mere personal qualities in Jephthah, but it was undoubtedly through the grace of God. For we find Jephthah a man of deep devotion to God, intense loyalty to God. He loved God, even though his own family cast him out. He wasn't to blame for his condition of being illegitimate. And yet he was punished for the sins of others. His life resembles another eccentric life, of which we read of in the book of Chronicles, namely a man called Jabez. And his name signifies sorrow. And he was born such a little wizened baby that his mother called him Jabez, expressive of the sorrow that he had caused her. And so Jabez was thrown into life as a little miserable good-for-nothing. But when he grew old enough to think and to pray, he turned from his distressing circumstances to his God. And we read of him in this glorious chapter. In First Chronicles 4 and verse 10, we see how God looks upon the despised people of this world who turn to him. Jabez called upon the Lord God and said, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And it is added, God granted him that which he requested. And so it was with Jephthah. When all else forsook him, then the Lord took him up. And trusting in Jehovah, he lived on to have a glorious revenge upon the unkind people by bringing them a blessing instead of the curse that they had given him. We have a little touch of his character in the name that he was, which he gave his new home. He called it the land of Tob. And Tob means good in English. It is the land of good. And this is but a little straw to tell us how the wind blew in Jephthah's life. 
We read of another man later in Hebrews history who called a certain land that Solomon gave him Kabul. Not the one in Afghanistan, it's a different Kabul. Now Kabul means disagreeable. This man's name is Hiram and poor Hiram looked at his country through the green glasses of discontent and everything was green but Jephthah looked at his land in the golden light of faith and hope and all was bright no matter how dark it seemed to him. No matter the disadvantage in his life of him being looked down upon his family, his clan, his tribe as the least of them all, as someone to be despised and cast out. Oh no. He trusted in God. Friends, God wants his people to be delivered from sorrow just as much as from sin. Israel's long and sad failure in the wilderness all began in the spirit of discontent. In the, as it were, murmuring. They did not murmur outright, but they, as it were, murmured, the scripture says. So there was murmuring going on, discontent. And from this they went on until... In the end was rebellion and then judgment, the loss of Canaan and the curse of God. There is in the spirit of gloom, sadness and discontent, a morbid and unwholesome touch just as defiling as actual sin. It chills the whole temperature of the spiritual life and hurts every plant of faith and love. Now I've been told that one breath of frost in Florida destroys the orange crop for years. And that one touch of morbidness and selfish, sentimental sorrow will not only chill our own inner spirit, but will depress everybody that we come in contact with and lower the temperature of a whole community of happy Christians. Let us live in the land of Tob, the land of good, for there is no better and more good land. I nearly went into Alabama English at that stage. Gooder land. Okay, there you go. Land of good than the kingdom of God. So let us live in the land of Tob, and let us accept the fullness of God's atonement, who not only bore our sins, but our sorrows too. Now the name of Jephthah himself is very significant. It means God opens, and it expresses that there's no doubt in him. The trust which he looked to Jehovah for is open in every possible way. He trusts in God, he trusts that he is the anchor of his hope, the door of his hope. And the thorns and the thistles of sorrow through Almighty God become the palms of victory. Next we find Jephthah surrounded by a most unfavorable set of companions. The narrative calls his companions vain fellows. And they were the outcasts of society. They were the men who had been thrown as waifs upon the currents of life, rejected by their families. And they naturally gravitated to a stronger center like Jephthah. Now such companions are not favorable to development of the highest character. And how often we hear people complaining that others have led them to go and to do wrong. And yet we find in this account of the Bible that many of God's noblest lives are molded through the very influence of uncongenial associations. Joseph grew to be the very pinnacle of moral greatness in defiance of the people around him. David, King David in his exile years, was surrounded by outlaws and outcasts of Israel. 
but through the power of his own personality and the grace of Almighty God that was with him, these men became transformed into his noblest followers, into his friends, and afterwards were made the very princes of his kingdom, essential to the building of the kingdom of Israel under David. And so the Lord Jesus Christ takes us a company of poor, worthless sinners and things that are despised. And by the transforming power of his grace, he lifts us into his own likeness and crowns us with his own glory. What a king, brethren. And so, as we are thrown into the society of evil men, be it ours to lift and ennoble them. And instead of letting them draw us down, let us lift them up to the mounts of blessing, to the proclamation of the gospel, where God has set us, in order that we may be the lights of a dark world and shine brighter through the very darkness that surrounds us. They tell of a good preacher who was arrested and put in jail because of his preaching. He prayed so loud when he was in prison that the very authorities of the jail were glad to get him out. But there is no place and there is no society where we may not live the life of Christ and receive the glory of his indwelling through his word and share it to others that desperately need it. There is no depth of sin and misery so great but that he can lift us up and turn our sorrow into joy and our curse into a blessing for ourselves, for others, and for the land. To turn the land from a land of cursing to a land of blessing. And still he uses the base things of the world and things that are despised, yea, and things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh may glory in his presence. First Chronicles 1, verse 28. And so the day came and Jephthah's brothers were glad to send for him to be their deliverer. And Jephthah had the high honour of returning good for evil and saving the people that once despised and cast him out. He was nothing to them. He was Jephthah, the illegitimate child, the one they looked down, the one that brought shame upon them. And yet here he was, serving God, blessed by God, to be their deliverer. This is the way that God loves to vindicate us, to make us a blessing to those that hated us and wronged us. His promise is, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Revelation 3 verse 9. The principle is true, to let them know that God has loved us. When Jephthah responded to their appeal and came for their help, we see in his very words and the acts of, the, of his spirit, a spirit of godliness and a trusting, humble faith. We are told explicitly that all his words to his own people were before the Lord. He spoke as in Jehovah's presence. And so when he sent his challenge to his enemies, it was couched in language of the loftiest faith. I like the old story. There's an old song where David has gone out to talk to the Philistines. And the Philistines are saying, there is no God in Israel. We can't see him, show him to us. And David in the song says, you come against me with your weapons from hell. You come against me with your fearful evil spell. 
But I come against you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. Prepare to die. That was his faith. That's the fighting spirit Christians have to have. There's a time to be quiet. And there's a time to roar for the King of Kings. For the Lion of Zion. For we serve before the Lord. And he spoke as in Jehovah's presence. And so when he sent his challenge to his enemies, it was crouched in that language of trust in Almighty God. He repelled their claims by reminding them how they had treated Israel in the wilderness and they had forced a conflict with them. And then how Almighty God, the God of Israel, had taken their land and given it to his own people and destroyed the power of Og and Sion and their giant kings. And now Jephthah referred the battle once more to Jehovah. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he went against his adversaries in the name of Jehovah God. For the battle was not his, it was the Lord's. And such faith can never be confounded. It was not long before Jephthah returned in triumph from the slaughter of his enemies. His country had been delivered, his claims vindicated, and his enemies were destroyed. Israel was free. But now we see in Jephthah another lesson. Not only of the loftiest faith, but of the sublimest faithfulness. In the hour of peril, he had vowed a vow unto Jehovah, pledging that when he returned in victory, the first object that he met should be dedicated to the Lord in offering to him. As he came back amid the acclamations of universal triumph, the first who met him when he approached his home was his beautiful daughter. And all he realized, he realized then that all to all that his vow, all that his vow had meant, and he was overwhelmed for a moment with the deepest of emotions. But not for an instant did he hesitate in his firm and high purpose. Not once did he fear that his dear child would shrink back. And not once did she, did she shrink back from the sacrifice imposed upon her. But stood nobly with her father. Demanding that he should fulfill his vow to God to the utmost. And together they stood true to their covenant God. Now there has been much discussion as to the real meaning of Jephthah's vow and the real fate of Jephthah's daughter. But there are several passages and constructions which can leave no doubt in the mind of a candid reader that takes the word of God in context that it was not a literal human sacrifice that Jephthah offered and that the fair child was not slain upon the altar like the children of Ammon before their god of fire but that her fresh, her young life was given in all its purity as a living sacrifice of separation and service to God. In the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, we find the most solemn warning given to Israel against imitating the least degree of cruel and wicked rites of the Ammonites, especially in offering human sacrifices. Now these Ammonites were the very people against whom Jephthah had gone forth to war. And as a godly follower of God, he must have been very familiar with the commandments of the book of Deuteronomy. It was a lot easier for them to read the Bible back then than for us today. We have 66 books, they had five. They just had five to read. For him, therefore, to directly disobey these solemn injunctions 
would have been to prove false to all his character and all the meaning of his victory in the name of the God of Israel. Again, in the 12th chapter of Exodus, it is clearly taught that the firstborn of Israel were all to be recognized as the Lord's and liable, therefore, to death like the Egyptian firstborn. But instead of their lives being literally required, they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the Paschal Lamb was offered instead of the life of the Hebrew. And that life was still regarded as holy the Lord's, given to him in living consecration, of which the whole tribe of Levi was regarded as the type, and therefore it was separated unto the service of the Lord as a substitute for the lives of the firstborn. In all this was clearly taught the lesson of what God required from his people was not a dead body, but a living sacrifice, Romans 12 and verse 1. It is much harder to live for God than to die for God. It takes much less spiritual and moral power to leap into the conflict and fling a life away in the excitement of the battle and the fray than it does to live through 50 years of misunderstanding, pain and temptation of oppression and rejection. It would have been so much easier for Jephthah's daughter to have lain down amid the flowers of spring, the chants and songs of her religious ceremonial, the tears and tributes of the people that loved her and know that her name would be forever enshrined than to go out from the bright circle of human society and all the charms of youth and beauty and domestic and social delight and live as a recluse for God alone. Giving up the dearest hope of every Hebrew woman, not only to be a mother, but to be the mother of the promised Christ, the promised Messiah, the hope of every daughter of Israel, giving up also along with her father the fond desire of a son or grandson to serve his honour and his sceptre, to prolong his name. This is what it meant. This was the sacrifice she made. And so we read that she did not go aside to bewail her approaching death, but she went aside for two months to bewail her virginity, the loneliness of her lone life, Then she gladly gave her life as a living sacrifice to God. There are several other considerations that must be added, if necessary, to establish the construction of this passage. It is enough to briefly refer to the fact that the phrase in verse 39 is in the future tense and refers to her human future virginity and not her past. And also that the translation of the 40th verse is that the daughters of Israel went yearly to talk with the daughter of Jephthah. It is not necessary to pursue the argument further, enough for our present purpose that we catch the inspired lesson. For that lesson is supreme, unqualified, unquestioning fidelity to God. This is what he requires. Jephthah is the man that can be depended upon by God. Jephthah is also the man on whom depends, whom he depends, <coughs> on whom he depends upon God. And God is looking for such lives. And on such men, he will put the weight of his highest service and his eternal glory. This is what he's looking for in us in our lives. May God help each of us to be such a man of whom the psalmist says, in Psalms 15 verse 4, he sweareth to his own hurt, and he changeth not.
we will not change. We stand upon the finished work of Christ. Washed clean in his blood. Our sins that were filthy rags upon us. Replaced with the righteousness of Christ. The white pure linen of cleanliness. Of beauty and righteousness. Of right living according to his way. How tender and beautiful the lesson which this passage gives to the young as well as the old. Just as Isaac stands out in the older story in a light as glorious as Abraham in the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, so Jephthah's daughter's sacrifice must not be forgotten in the honour we pay her father. This sweet child of single-hearted consecration May God help her sisters and our followers to be as true these days. Friends, do not wait until desire shall fail and age chill the pulses of your youth. And the world will fall away from you itself. But when the flowers are blooming and the cup is brimming and the heart beats high with earthly love and joy and hope, then... It is so sweet, it is so wise, it is so rare to pour all at his blessed feet. As Mary poured her ointment on the feet of our Lord, sorry, upon our Lord's head. And someday to receive it back amid the bloom and joys of heaven. There are they that have forsaken friends and treasures, fond affections and brightest prospects for his dear sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall have the still richer joy of knowing that they have learned his spirit and understood his love. In order to learn what God tells us, we must study his word. We must peruse over every word as if we're searching for a small gem in the sand. For everyone can change our lives, change the lives of our families, change the lives of others forever. The true story is told of a young woman who was waiting for her husband to return home from the war. It was the end of the Civil War and he he did return home, but when he returned home he found out that she had become a Christian. And she told him the word of God and he became a Christian. Their children became Christians. And their children's children became Christians. Lo and behold, they had about 20 or 30 preachers in the line up to the present day. And they're still out there preaching. All because one lady, all alone, worrying about her husband's safety, took comfort in the word of God. Read it, applied it to our life. You see, we can change the world. We can only imagine how many thousands of lives were touched. God has given us the same word today to read, to make it a part of our lives, a part of us. In Acts 22, 16, the Apostle Paul was told not to wait. Now, Paul had been a persecutor of Christians. He thought he was serving God by persecuting Christians. And so he was on his way to Damascus to hunt down the Christian church there and to do them in can only imagine what was going to happen. It wouldn't have been very nice. But on the way, he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was not saved when he encountered Christ on the way to Damascus. Oh, he was blinded. 
And he was brought to Damascus. And one of the very same Christians, Ananias, the Christians he had been sent there to persecute, was looking after him. Paul had been praying for three days. And the blindness had not been lifted. He still wasn't saved. So prayer didn't say. What did Ananias say? And now why tarriest thou? Why are you waiting? Don't wait. It's too important to put off till tomorrow. So this afternoon, do it now while you can. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptised for the remission of your sins. In the Greek, it carries with it the idea of that you, so you can be forgiven of your sins. That's what it means in the Greek. Translated in the English for the forgiveness of your sins, no matter what way you look at it. You are not forgiven of your sins until you are baptized. And then they're washed away. And that's not because a man has said so. It's because the God-man said so. The Lord Jesus Christ said so. And those that preached his word by his authority, the Apostle Peter and Paul and all of us who have come since, will tell you you must be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus said in Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Those are the words of Christ. The God of Israel upon earth, who walked in our footsteps, who felt pain like we feel, who felt hunger like we felt, who needed sleep as we need sleep when we are exhausted. We need to follow his example. And his example was the example given to us throughout Scripture. The example of successful people that honoured God. Men like Jephthah. Men like David. We must follow after our Lord Jesus to attain all righteousness and be baptised for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're not a Christian today, please obey what God has said. He will not let you down. You can trust him. And if you are a Christian, and if you need our prayers or our help in any way, the same God that delivered Israel of old and delivered us from our sins will deliver you this very day. We will pray with you, and may God bless you. Thank you for your attention.